Soy's really been hacked, so to speak. People have been saying all kinds of bad things about soy that really are not true. And one of the common ones is that soy will cause breast enhancement. And the verdict came in a long time ago, and it is very clear that soy products do not cause any feminization in men. Here's where the breast enhancement comes from. When people eat a lot of fatty foods and they have more fat cells, fat cells are not just blobs of calories. They are estrogen factories. They convert the testosterone to estrogen. He gets breast enhancement. It's actually breast tissue, and it came from his gaining weight and having more body fat. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us. And this is episode 55 of season four, number 250 overall. 250 episodes, a milestone of health. And I am so glad that you are here to help us celebrate. And in honor of this momentous occasion, Dr. Neil Barnard will be answering your questions as we open up the doctor's mailbag. And the first question, the one right on top of the stack, well, it is one of the most talked about nutrition myths that we have ever tackled here on the show. We will be summing up soy. Specifically, if you're a guy, will it lower your testosterone? Now, you just heard from Dr. Barnard. He put to bed the rumor of where man boobs come from. It's not from soy. So is soy also not the culprit for lower testosterone overall when it comes to guys? That answer is coming up. Also about soy today, will it interfere with certain thyroid treatments? If you or someone that you know is taking Synthroid, you're going to want to hear this. Plus, we'll be helping out someone who's confused about some studies claiming that so-called natural fats that are found in meat and butter, while they're not as harmful as so-called artificial fats. What's the truth there? And we'll be lending a helping hand to someone wondering if they can find relief from hay fever by taking certain foods out of their diet. Those questions and a lot more. Plus... Because today is such a big episode, we're going to supersize it, and we're going to be looking at another health factor, one that speaks to the heart of animal lovers. I will be joined by a very special guest, Dr. Tove Fall. She is a licensed veterinarian and a professor of molecular epidemiology, and she is going to be talking with us about how having a dog can affect your health. We'll be getting into some of her studies showing that the healthier you are, the more likely you are to have a healthy dog, one that is in great shape. But the same thing may unfortunately be true if someone is out of shape and overweight, maybe even has diabetes. Why is it then that their dog is more likely to be out of shape, overweight, and possibly even have diabetes? That connection is strong, and we will be getting into her groundbreaking research momentarily. It is absolutely riveting. But first, I wanted to let you know that today's episode of the Exam Room Podcast is sponsored by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. 
Supporting organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse. You can visit Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund online at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org. Time now to get this supersized show underway. Here now, the truth about soy and the doctor's mailbag with Dr. Barnard. Let's go ahead right now and open up that doctor's mailbag and welcome Dr. Neil Barnard to the show. Thank you so very much for being here, sir. Hi there, Chuck. Good to see you. You ready for question number one, my friend? Let's do it, Chuck. All right. This one comes from Wendy. It's a two-parter and the first part is really kind of it's interesting. The men in my household, she writes, consume cruciferous veggies because they think that it increases testosterone, but they also avoid soy because they think it lowers testosterone. Is any of this true? No. <laughs> I'm sorry to break your heart. Um, first of all, um, it's great they're um, eating their cruciferous vegetables, so you might not want to tell them that that they're not going to see any big change in their testosterone level from eating them. So, uh, guys, have at the Brussels sprouts. That's great. I'm glad you're eating them. Whether it's going to have any hormonal effect, don't count on it. But the thing, the bigger issue here is soy. Soy has been the victim of soy has really been hacked, so to speak. People have been saying all kinds of bad things about soy that really are not true. And one of the common ones is that soy will cause uh, breast enhancement, that it will reduce testosterone, all this kind of stuff, sort of feminizing um, is the idea. And the verdict came in a long time ago, and it is very clear that soy products do not cause any feminization in men. They don't have an adverse effect on a man's uh, testosterone level at all, period, you know, really end of it. Um, And if you... um, have subscribed to the idea that soy products cause man boobs. This is kind of the way it's put on, if you read the internet, forgive me for saying this, but that's what it is. What they mean is that a guy has some breast enlargement and they're thinking maybe that was from soy. Um, what I always suggest that a person do to test this out is go to the beach on a hot July day. And if you see a guy who's a little heavy set and he's pulling off his shirt and you think, my, he does have some breast enhancement, go right up to him. And ask him, how much tofu have you been eating this past week? And I guarantee you, he will say, tofu. I don't eat tofu. What are you talking about? I eat pizza. I eat burgers. I eat grilled cheese. That's my thing. What's tofu? I don't, it's not part of my thing. Researchers have had a long time to understand what's happening. And here's what's happened. Here's where the breast enhancement comes from. As he's eating fatty foods, cheese, burgers, whatever. Uh, People who eat those foods tend to gain weight compared to people who don't. And when people eat a lot of fatty foods and they have more fat cells, fat cells are not just blobs of calories. They are estrogen factories. So you got more body fat. Into each fat cell, the testosterone goes into the cell. Estrogen comes out of the cell. They convert the testosterone to estrogen. He gets breast enhancement. It's actually breast tissue, and it came from his gaining weight and having more body fat. Um, a switch to a vegan diet, including soy, would help make all of that go away. So let me let me just kind of break this down for those who who aren't yet familiar. Let me let me see if I can ask a question that will kind of put a bow on this. 
when a gentleman has what what you refer to as man boobs or moobs, as the kids call it, um, that that is legitimate breast tissue, very similar to what or identical to what a woman has. It's a mixture of fat and actual breast tissue, and yes, that's right. Um, and well, and, and in fact, some of this is normal. Uh, particularly at puberty, you'll see a little breast tissue just because the body's going through kind of a hormonal roller coaster. And for most men, if you really look, they'll have a little tiny trace. You know, they've got a nipple. They've got a little tiny trace of breast tissue underneath. But for some men, that gets really enhanced, and it gets enhanced by estrogens that come from their body fat. Mm, so the more fat a man eats, the more at risk he is for developing moobs? Well, yes. Um, and the, the mechanism is that his body fat is increasing and the body fat is the estrogen factory. Now, I should say about, about soy, the old-fashioned idea was that soy's isoflavones will attach to estrogen receptors and do all kinds of mischief. Um, these myths got launched way before people realized that there are two different kinds of estrogen receptors. And soybeans don't, the, the isoflavones in soy, do not preferentially attach to the alpha receptors at all. They preferentially attach to the beta receptors, which you could think of as kind of the, the break on a lot of these things. So soy is a soy is a good thing. It's optional. Don't have to have it, but it will not make you effeminate. Let's take a question here from Pete now. This is an interesting one. Maybe Pete is struggling with this. He wants to know what actually happens to the fat in our body when it, quote, burns off. Where does it go? Where does your fat go? Well, you know, your body is burning fuels all day long. Um, if you are out for a run, there is glycogen, which is actually a big, long chain of sugar molecules in your muscles. It's in your liver. And that just dissipates because your body takes it, burns it up, and uses it for energy. Now, your fat is right behind it, um, meaning that your body uses the glycogen first, uses the fat second. And your body will actually, inside the fat cells, little bits of it are liberated and, and actually burned up just like any other fuel. They go away. Good follow-up here. I think maybe uh, Pete's been uh, reading up, doing some research, wants to know also, what about the stuff that is clogging our arteries? If we switch to a plant-based diet, where does that stuff wind up going? Um, what we believe is happening is that your narrowed arteries, um, if you could look in real close detail at the artery narrowings, what you see is that the atherosclerotic plaques, which are the bumps on the insides of the, the artery walls that are narrowing them, they're made up of a lot of things. There's some fat there, there's some cholesterol there, and there happens to be overgrowing muscle cells there. And as time goes on, calcium comes in and makes it kind of hard like a, like a rock. Um, the earlier ones, the ones that aren't all cal calcified, will go away. And what we think is happening is that as the when a person decided to go vegan, and there's no more cholesterol or animal fat in their diet, the um, white blood cells that clean up any kind of sort of infection or, or debris will start working on that area as well and clean up much of that. And it will gradually shrink down um, as, as part of that healing process. Let's take a question now from Janie. Uh, she writes in, uh, when coming from a 35 to 40% diet, that's uh, 35 to 40% fat in the diet down to all the way to just 10 to 15%, right? So she's really reducing her fat levels. Why is it that she may not be feeling quite as full, even if she's eating high starch, high fiber vegetables? You will. Give it time. It will come. 
Um, it's really a matter of the tastes that you have been habituated to. Um, researchers in Philadelphia did this quite a number of years ago and where they changed the fat content of the diet. And they found that over, oh, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks, something like that, your body accommodates to whatever the new fat level is. If it's greasy stuff, you'll come to prefer the greasy stuff. If it's very low oil, you'll come to prefer that. When I was a kid, I experienced this directly. I was about 10 years old. And my mother said, from now on, we're not having any whole milk in the house at all. She switched us to non-fat milk. We thought it was terrible. Didn't even look right. It was sort of blue and it tasted all watery and horrible. Within a couple of weeks, we were totally used to it. And then by mistake, she bought some whole milk. And we thought it tasted like paint or like cream. So very rapidly, your taste buds will accommodate to the newer level. So that's it. It's not so much a question of satiety. It's more a question of, of the taste buds. And give it 10 days, two weeks, you'll get used to it. She kind of termed that as fat detox. Is there such a thing as actually physically or mentally detoxing off of fat? You can think of it that way. Something physical is probably happening either in the brain or in the taste buds themselves that does, cause, that does cause a person to accommodate. And you see this with many things. Uh, there's a food that at first taste, you may not like it very much. You accommodate to it. Um, and then there are other tastes that we thought we couldn't live without that we sort of forget over time. The body is, is really just throwing out the, the, the old habits and embracing new ones. Let's keep chewing the fat here with a question from Adam. Writes in, I've heard of studies that claim that natural trans fats, uh, such as those found in meat and butter, are not as harmful as the artificially made fats. But why would that be? Um, don't believe it. Um, uh, it. There is a curiosity that ruminant animals do make trans fats, the, the, the same stuff that's illegal in a New York restaurant. Um, it, it, Back in the what, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, you would see uh, in the fryers uh, in restaurants, a lot of sort of Crisco, you could think of it that way. These are vegetable fats that were hardened up chemically and then could be used to fry French fries or fish or whatever they threw in the fryer. Um, the reason that they were used is partly mouthfeel, they're buttery, um, and also because of shelf life. And liquid oil will go rancid, but when you make them into trans fats, they last probably 2,000 years. Um, so um, restaurants would use them a lot, um, but they raise cholesterol levels and have been banned um, for the most part. Um, however, a curiosity is that a cow or other ruminant animals will make trans fats, and some of it gets into their tissues. Um, and it's just a question of the quantity. Um, no, they are not health food at all, and it adds to... The other bad fats, the saturated fat that is also in the meat and milk. Uh, let's keep with cholesterol here. Question from Beth. I'm eating a whole food plant-based diet, but still struggling with cholesterol, which is over 200. She also says that her HSCRP is 0.4. Wants to know, should she be concerned? And uh, might I add, what is HSCRP? Yes, um, C-reactive protein. And the HS stands for high sensitivity. It's, it's a, that's the way it's measured. Um, C-reactive protein, th this is a question for extra credit. Um, it's an index of inflammation. And uh, if a person is has a really high CRP level, which you don't have, um, that's a sign of widespread inflammation in the body. And you'll see it with inflammatory diseases like um, rheumatoid arthritis or other autoimmune conditions, asthma, and many, many others. And you'll also see it come down when a person gets on a healthy anti-inflammatory diet. Now, back to your cholesterol. 
Uh, 200 is sort of what we think of arbitrarily as the top of a healthy level. The truth is, it'd be nice to get down towards 150. That's where you're getting pretty close to bulletproof. Not not entirely, but but um, the risk of a heart problem goes down and down and down as you go from 190 to 180, 170. But the real issue here isn't so much your total cholesterol, because total cholesterol is the is is the sum of bad cholesterol, good cholesterol. What really matters is the bad stuff, LDL. So if your LDL or low density lipoprotein cholesterol is under 100, that's where we want to see it. Um, if it's if the reason your total is high is because you've got a lot of HDL, high density lipoprotein, and that's raising your levels, then we're not really going to be so worried about it. It's really the LDL. Um, and what do you do? Avoid animal products completely. You're probably doing that. Keep oils really low. Avoid coconut and palm oil and have some special effect foods, beans, um, uh, soy products. They have a special, very small cholesterol lowering effect. Same thing with uh, oats and oatmeal. So put all that uh, together, check your cholesterol after about eight weeks. And if it has not gone down, you can thank your parents for having given you genes that may mean that your cholesterol is going to be high kind of no matter what you do. So you're not doing terrible, but have a look at your LDL. That's, That's really where the money's at. We have a great mix of questions here in the mailbag today. Let's take one from Julie. Wants to know, what is the connection between fibroids and diet? And could a plant-based diet help someone who has them? Well, fibroids, um, if you're dealing with fibroids, I'm, I'm sorry to hear it. Um, although, although I should say that a lot of women have fibroids that they're not aware of. They're extremely common. Most women have them. What are they? Um, in the uterus, the uterus, the womb, it's got a muscular layer, just like um, kind of steel belts in a tire. The muscular layer is there to give your uterus strength and to allow it to contract and so forth. Well, sometimes those muscles get a mind of their own and they start to make little muscular knots. And it can be like a little marble um, in the muscle layer. And sometimes it's more of a golf ball or a tennis ball. And then they are associated with discomfort um, and all kinds of other issues. Smaller ones for many women, they just don't, they're not even aware they're there. What's the connection with, well, first of all, there's a connection with hormones. Their growth is fueled by estrogens. And the link with diet is that diet can cause estrogens to, uh, to be higher than they otherwise would, would be. Uh, dairy products contain estrogens, actual estradiol. Um, and so that we presume is a driver for them. Um, but also if you're not getting adequate fiber, then your body doesn't have the ability to get rid of excess estrogen. And if you're having a lot of fat from any source, that raises estrogen. So putting all this together, plant-based diet, no dairy, no added fat, lots of fiber is going to bring your estrogen levels down a little bit. And in theory, at least, that would take the, the fuel off of those growing fibroids. That said, these knots take a while to form long time. And they probably take a long time to go away. And for many women, when they really start to shrink is way after menopause, when the body's estrogen levels really drop dramatically. Um, All of this being said, sometimes doctors do surgery to remove fibroids if they're really getting in your way. That's an unusual thing, but it happens. Um, You can try a diet change first and see where you go. Um, But uh, typically, I'm unlike 
many other dietary influences, this one is pretty slow. Let's take a question here from John. Oh my, it's a question about omega-3s. Wants to know whether cooking omega-3s, say in chia or flax seeds, will degrade the omega-3s they contain. They're still there. They still work. Asked and answered. Okay, (laughs) fair enough. All right, Uh, Lori on Twitter. My brother has gout. Oh, that's unfortunate. I think he would be more open to talking about plant-based health, but we always get hung up when talking about beans. Can you suggest good amounts of plant-based foods that are also gout-friendly aside from beans? Yeah, Um, well, all of them pretty much are, are fine. There are four groups, grains, beans, vegetables, fruits. And they're all fine, including for a person who's got gout. Um, If you were to look at observational trials of people where they've got gout or they don't have gout, beans really get a not guilty verdict. Um, The the, the concern here is there's a question about uric acid with beans. But when you look in real life, what actually happens is a whole lot of nothing. Um, Gout is a disease that has been known since sort of the Middle Ages, as a disease of affluence. And people on very rich, especially meaty diets, are particularly prone to gout. Uh, beans are part of the answer, not part of the, not part of the problem. All right. We have a uh, couple of questions about calcium. We'll start with this one from Michelle. She writes, uh, I have osteopenia as a result of treatment for breast cancer six years ago. All I've been told is to do weight bearing exercise and take a calcium supplement. But I've also heard that calcium supplements are questionable for bone health. What would you recommend for a 52 year old woman who has a BMI of 24 and is in this situation? Okay. So in other words, you're not overweight. You've got a good weight. You're, you're active. And it sounds like you've come through a pretty frightening diagno- diagnosis, but you're, it sounds like you're doing well. Uh, step one, do stick with your doctor. Um, everything that we're talking about in this whole show is not a substitute for individualized medical care. And that's going to be true for you, just like everybody else watching the program, uh, because you're dealing with a, a, number of, a number of issues. But for bone health, you, you do need calcium. And there is calcium and calcium supplements. If you are taking calcium supplements, I would have one important tip, and that's take them with food. Don't take them on an empty stomach. It looks like when people take just the calcium and nothing else, it can increase the risk of kidney stones. Um, But if you take them with food, your body somehow manages to have the sort of cocktail of nutrients put together, and they, uh, for whatever reason, don't seem to be associated uh, with kidney stones. Now, once you've taken the calcium, It's got to get absorbed. So that's what vitamin D is for. And so vitamin D from the sun, um, you're outside in 20 minutes or so, give or take, of sunlight on your hands and face is enough for most people. If you are using a sunscreen, it stops the vitamin D. If you're inside, it stops the vitamin D. If you have a lot of pigmentation, that will slow down the vitamin D as well. Um, If you're in any of these situations, you might want to consider a vitamin D supplement. Uh, most doctors say about 2,000 international units a day. Um, and I like that you're exercising. That's a, that's a good idea. Give your bones a reason to live. And the more, the more the bones are sort of worked, so to speak, whether it's running, uh, walking, weight-bearing exercise, uh, the more your, your uh, bones respond by Im- improving their, uh, their bone density. So you can put all that together. Um, the last thing I should just say, is there's, there, there's a bit of an unknown here. Um, when people have heart disease, 
the atherosclerotic plaques, those, those narrowings in their arteries that, that start out like little soft bumps. It's almost like a little blister inside your artery. As time goes on, they harden up. What's happening is they are calcifying. And the question has come up, is uh, an overly high calcium intake contributing to that process? Don't know, uh, but some of the evidence says it might be. If that's the case, we're encouraging people to not push too hard on their calcium intake. Once you're at about 600 or 800 milligrams of calcium per day, it's pretty hard to make a case for more than that with regard to bone health, unless your doctor has you on some specific uh, regimen for it. So have adequate calcium. I'm going to say that's about 600 milligrams a day, even though that's less than what the government typically calls for. Um, but uh, be guided by your own doctor's recommendations that take your, your own uh, health into, into account. Calcium question number two comes to us from Instagram, a viewer by the name of House Blend Studio. I hear it's recommended to drink fortified plant milk for calcium because it's more bioavailable when it's fortified in the milk versus taking that supplement you were just talking about. Says, I eat greens most of the time and always eat a whole food plant-based diet. I'm 53. Do I still need more calcium? If you're eating lots of greens, that's really nature's calcium source. That, that's the, the calcium star. I wouldn't really think beyond that if it's a big part of, of your, your diet. And you're also getting calcium and the other things that, that you're eating along with it, the beans and, and other foods like grains. and Even fruits have tiny traces too. Um, no, you, so you don't need a calcium-enhanced smoothie or something like that. Uh, let's see here. This one from Dan. I've had severe hay fever since childhood and I don't consume dairy products, but I still have bad episodes. Are there any plant-based immunologists studying and or addressing hay fever with the focus on food allergies? Oh, wow. Um, what an important question. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that you're dealing with that. And, and you put your finger on exactly the issue. Most people with hay fever or other, what I'm going to call environmental allergies, it can be a pollen, it can be dust, it can be uh, your dog or your cat that you're reacting to. The proteins uh, in all these sources can get into your body and you recognize them as foreign and you react. And one of the ways you react is with sneezing or bronchoconstriction in the lungs or, or all kinds of other things. Um, and dairy products, as you've surmised, are suspect number one. Because, frankly, because a lot of people when they have hay fever or have asthma and they get away from dairy, they just get dramatically better. And I would always encourage everybody to do that step right away, and including if a mom or dad is listening to this and you have a child with asthma and everybody's saying, your child needs milk, your child needs milk. Don't listen to those people saying that and give your child a complete break, not just from milk, but all dairy products, including uh, packaged foods, packaged foods that have dairy in them. Get that completely and see if your child doesn't get better. It is well worth a try. But there are other foods that can sometimes trigger reactions. And we've dealt with this in rheumatoid arthritis. We've dealt with it in migraines. And you can also see it with hay fever and see it with asthma. Um, let me refer you to a list. I wrote a book a few years ago called The Cheese Trap. Cheese, as in high-protein dairy food, uh, one of the bigger triggers. But in the appendix of that book, you'll see an elimination diet that lists the main bad guys and it shows a, a, a fairly simple way of getting them out of the diet. Let me give you the Cliff Notes, Cliff Notes version, version of this. Um, things like uh, corn, chocolate, potatoes, oranges, uh, gluten. Healthy for most people. 
but some people have a reaction to them. So we take them all out of the diet, let the person's symptoms settle down, and then bring them back in one at a time every two days to see, um, see uh, which one is their trigger. And there are about a dozen, 12, 13, 14 foods like that. And, and uh, many times you find one or two or three triggers that when you find them and avoid them, you feel dramatically better. All right. Here's a good one from Steve. We talk a lot on this show about iodine sources. That seems to come up at least once or twice a month. So Steve is wondering uh, whether he's getting enough iodine from sodium. Is there a rule of thumb for getting enough of one, but not too much of another? He says that he did buy some iodized sea salt as well as a pack of seaweed, but he doesn't really know how to balance them out. Yeah. Um, you won't know because there's no really easy way to measure it. But if you're using an iodized salt, that's fine. And now hopefully you're not using an enormous quantity of salt on things, but a little modest use of iodized salt on your foods is fine. And back in the 20s, early 20s, um, iodine deficiency is pretty common. And a lot of people were hypothyroid here in the United States. And 1924, the Morton Salt Company said, we're going to end this by taking their Morton Salt and adding iodine to it. And almost overnight, iodine deficiency was, was pretty much wiped out. So it's it's a way of just delivering this mineral to people. But as you've pointed out, it's not the only source. Seaweed is a great source. Uh, if you had a sheet of nori, that's the one they wrap the sushi in, or some wakame. Uh, wakame is the little strands of seaweed in your miso soup. Um, and other seaweeds are very abundant in iodine and a little bit will go a long way. Uh, some people will say, well, I just I don't have a clue about any of that stuff. I'm just going to take an iodine pill. You can do it. Um, don't go too high. The recommended dietary allowance is 150 micrograms per day. That's it. Don't go higher. High levels of um, iodine can be a problem, just like low levels. Let's see if we can grab a few more before we close up the doctor's mailbag for today. Here's one from Maria writes that she has been diagnosed with candida and is on a special diet. Wants to know, how do you recommend Dr. Barnard approaching the candida diet as a vegan? What foods do you recommend and which ones should be avoided? Well, with the candida diet, um, there was a, uh, I think a, a really good guy named William Crook who wrote about the Crook, C-R-O-O-K, who wrote, wrote about this a number of years ago. And he would encourage people to go low on sugar um, and low on refined carbohydrates. But there's a lot left um, in your diet. Uh, if, if, you want, if you're trying that approach, see if it helps you. If it doesn't help you, you can skip it. Um, but some people feel that it's, it's helpful for them to get away from sugar. And so what does that leave? There are plenty of vegetables. Um, if you look at broccoli and Brussels sprouts and cauliflower and kale and collards and all those things, they're not really super starchy and they're fine. Um, but also do say, I would encourage you to have beans, certain amount of grains um, and fruits in your diet and, and just see how you tolerate those things. Candida is never a reason to go back to meat or dairy products or things because that's going to cause more problems than they would solve. Carly is a cancer survivor and looking for some advice here today. She writes, I had a thyroidectomy a few years ago due to thyroid cancer. And since switching to a whole food plant-based diet, I've had family members tell me that I shouldn't be eating soy because it will interfere with my Synthroid. Is soy something that I should be avoiding entirely? No, definitely not. Uh, it's a common question. Um, what you should do is you should avoid all foods entirely for, oh, half hour before you take your Synthroid, 
and maybe an hour after, because the food that's in your stomach is going to stop it from being absorbed into your bloodstream. It doesn't matter if it's soy or anything. Um, you know how some some medicines it says it says take with food. Some say take on an empty stomach. Synthroid empty stomach, and that's from right before to, to after the meal. All right. Question from Joel. Next to last question. Can a vegan diet help with elevated lipoprotein A levels? Probably. Um, this is for extra credit, too, um, that when people go beyond their LDL, bad cholesterol, they sometimes look at lipoprotein A. And generally speaking, these things go in the same direction. So when you're getting away from meat and dairy products and eggs, there's no cholesterol on your diet anymore. There's no animal fat. So what you're going to see is that pretty much all of the subfractions start coming down together. All right. Final question today comes to us from Linda. And this is one that I think a lot of people can probably relate to. She writes, I feel overburdened at home with childcare and cooking and cleaning and everything else. Could you please talk about some super simple ways to prepare healthy vegan food, even without a recipe? Using some frozen and some canned food might even help. Is there an alternative even such as ordering vegan takeout? So my goodness, she's got a whole heck of a lot on her plate and she wants to put healthy things on the plate. How can she do that? Well, first of all, your family's lucky to have you. Um, you're looking after them and trying to look after yourself and trying to juggle a million things. So um, good on you for that. Um, yeah, everybody handles this in their own way. And I hope you'll keep watching here at the exam room where we share lots and lots of perspectives from, from different people. You'll see lots of things. Um, also, on our 20, if you haven't downloaded our app, the 21 Day Vegan Kickstart, do that because it has a lot of tips uh, to make it really quick and easy for you. Um, but a couple of, of things. You didn't say this, but it, some people are cooking a meal for them and a separate meal for other family members who might not yet be quite vegan, don't do that. Make a healthy meal for everybody. And if somebody else is not quite vegan, they can cook for themselves. Um, what, what's going to happen is very quickly, they're, they're going to eat what you eat. So one thing, uh, batch cooking is great. If you get your Instant Pot out there and you make extra of whatever it is you're cooking, um, you can separate out things and you can batch cook. Um, let's think about the different groups of food. Uh, for example, you're getting vegetables. Um, if you want a big time saver is you can get a big bag of broccoli pre-cut and frozen. Um, and there are a variety of brands that differ in price. You can get the cheapest ones that are there. You'll see them organic, non-organic. And so you don't have to cut them. You don't really have to clean them. You just throw them in your steamer, a big, big batch. And you can batch cook that too. Put them into little individual servings and you can have them over the next day or two. They'll last for a long time. You know, with with broccoli and Brussels sprouts and carrots and all kinds of things. Uh, with regard to beans, um, beans, if you buy them canned, great, you can do it. But don't be afraid of cooking them from scratch. Why? Because you don't need to supervise them. You soak them overnight, but they'll soak themselves. You, don't, you, can, you can be doing other things like sleeping while they soak, and you pour off the soaking water, fill it up again, and cook them for about an hour, but they'll cook themselves. You don't have to watch them. And you can get just from one big pot, easily six or eight servings of beans that you cooked up just once, ready for you to top them with salsa or whatever, whatever your topping might be. When it comes to grains, cook up a big batch of rice in the same way. And if you have never seen my special way of cooking rice, it's in just about every book I've ever written because there's a way of making brown rice that it tastes 
really, really, really delicious. And I'll share that with you in a future show or you'll see it in my book. Um, and then, of course, fruit. You don't have to do anything with them. You buy a big bag of apples, oranges, get a whole bunch of bananas, get generous amounts of them, leave them around uh, the house. That's the best, best, best snack for anybody uh, that you can imagine. Um, last tip. If your kids are old enough to get involved in food preparation, please do involve them in it. That, that, that'll save a little time with you. Uh, for you and will get them thinking about the healthfulness of foods. Now, when you're four, you can't do much other than sort of tear up lettuce and things like that. But as time goes on, your kids can help out um, and uh, make everybody's life easier. So those are just a few initial steps and you'll find lots more here on the exam room. Yeah. And I think that uh, honestly, you know, uh, kids, my suspicion is anyway, that they're actually going to be far more helpful in the kitchen than you realize. I remember not liking my mom's cooking at the age of three and starting to prepare my own meals just so I would enjoy what it was that I was eating. I love my mother, not the best cook uh, in the world, but I, Kids, in in my opinion, Dr. Barnard, can be far more helpful in the kitchen. And I do believe that we have even had other experts on the show who have said that when a kid gets involved in the cooking process, they're more interested in the food. So suddenly those Brussels sprouts that they ordinarily would say yuck to, they're all about them. Well, they're all about them. And, and also it, it depends a whole lot on what you put on top of them. Um, you, take, you take those Brussels sprouts, which, which any self-respecting six-year-old child is going to go, what's that? Uh, but you spray it with a little Bragg's or some seasoned rice vinegar, and it turns that bitter Brussels sprout into candy. So jump in. Uh, one other thing, if a person is going vegan, don't fail to notice that the cleanup got really fast. If you're scrubbing out the old roast pan and like 45 minutes later, there's still, you know, pre-Etruscan traces of, of stuff from the meat that came out of the oven. That doesn't happen on a low-fat vegan diet. You barely need to scrub anything. So you're clean up super fast and you're off to the tennis court. You can join us for the live broadcast of The Exam Room Live every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. That is your best opportunity to ask experts like Dr. Barnard your questions. And we're always happy to help to raise your health IQ. That is what this show is all about. So mark your calendars and set a reminder for Wednesdays, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel. And you can also send your questions to me right now on Twitter or Instagram with the hashtag ExamRoomLive. You can find me at Chuck Carroll, WLC. And Dr. Barnard is one of the more than two dozen of the world's leading experts who will be speaking at this year's International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine. It is one of the biggest health conferences of the entire year, and we would love it if you could join us. This is coming up July 15th through the 17th, and it is completely online. And exam room listeners, you, my exam roomies, you can save $50 off the cost of registration by using the promo code examroom when you sign up. That's $50 off with the code examroom at pcrm.org slash ICNM. And you can find a link along with that code. It's all one word, examroom, right now in the episode notes. We would love to see you there. And someone else you'll be seeing at ICNM this year is Dr. Tove Fall. 
She is a veterinarian and a professor of molecular epidemiology. And I guarantee you, we have never had anyone quite like her on the show before. It is such a treat to have her here because she has spent her career researching the health connection between humans and our four-legged friends. Dr. Fall's studies have looked at whether a dog is more likely to have diabetes if their caretaker does, and the same for heart disease. Could you be putting your dog at risk for cardiovascular issues if you have them yourself? Those answers are coming up right now as this supersized 250th episode of The Exam Room rolls on. Thank you so very much for being here, Dr. Fall. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. It's so cool that you're here. Your research is so fascinating to me. What gave you the idea to start studying the connection between having a pet in the house and how healthy that person is? Mm -hmm. Well, it all started with me having my clients coming with their dogs and the cats to the clinic. And I mean, I could really tell how important the pets were to their owners. And especially, uh, you know, when uh, they had a severe disease and we might have to put the dog down or so, you could really tell how much the pets meant to their owners and also they told me all their stories on how uh, the dogs or the cats would also provide them with social support and how the dogs will motivate them to physical activity and to meet other people out in the park. So that made me start to read up on, you know, is there any uh, science on how the pets affect us and our health? And of course, there was a lot of studies done with surveys, interviewing owners who all said, you know, the, do- the pets are so valuable to me. Uh, but looking at like more hard data and health data, that was not so easy to find. So there was only a couple of smaller studies. And when you do research, you usually need quite big numbers to actually be able to say something. And we also need to know a lot about the people who actually get the dog maybe they are different from the people who are not getting a dog and they're healthier because of those reasons so i was thinking i really need to do something well designed large study and then during my research i started to learn about how to do register based epidemiology so that means that you could take different data sources. So in Sweden, for example, we uh, we register everyone who comes to the hospital. We all have just one health system. So those data are kept in a single national data register. And you can link that to other data because we in Sweden, we use the same personal identity number for all official administration. Uh, so when you get your school grades or If you buy a dog, you will actually register that with your identity number. And that means that we can link this data and then study different questions about health. So that was kind of how I came up with this idea. That's really interesting. And based off of your conversations that you were having with your clients, I'm assuming you had an expectation going in that there probably was a positive effect that having a dog or a cat in the house would have on on that family's health, correct? Yeah, I I was thinking that mainly 
would you know be positive to have better social support and also do more physical activity here in Sweden you really have to take your dog out for walks at least three four times a day uh, by law uh, but also we know that if you lose a family member like if you lose your spouse or your child uh, then you can have an acute stress that will uh, can make cause for example acute cardiac events uh, the coming months after a severe uh, loss. So I was also thinking that maybe some uh, things related to keeping a pet might also cause some negative stress. So let's, uh, I, I want to back that up and say by law, you have to walk your dog three, four mm. times a day, isn't it? I think uh, one of the things I read in your presentation that you'll be giving at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine is by law, it's every six hours. Is that correct? Yeah, so you have to, you can't leave the dog alone for more than six hours. But you have to also uh, to, um, provide the exercise it needs. You, uh, if you have a big dog, for example, they require some more exercise. So it's quite tough to keep a dog in Sweden. And it's also cold climate, so it's not so easy to keep them, you know, outdoors in the garden. And you can't leave them alone for a long time. And in Sweden, most, if you're an adult, both parents work or both adults in a household work. So uh, it's and it's quite expensive also to get a dog. So that's something that um, drives the dog ownership rate to be quite low. So it's quite low in Sweden, around 15 percent. Um, yeah, that that is much lower than here in the U.S. I'm thinking just on my street alone, over half the homes have uh, a dog in them. So um, obviously, we don't have the the laws um, that say that you have to get out there, you know, four mm-hmm. times a day to to take the dog for a walk. Either, even though a lot of people here do something to that effect. Um, why do you think it is that there are laws? Um, that say that you you must take care of the animal in such a fine fashion? Like, what was the driving factor there? Yeah, we have quite strict uh, animal protections laws in Sweden. So one of our um, most famous authors, Astrid Lindgren, so she wrote children's books about Pippi Longstockings and other, they're quite famous, at least in Europe. Uh, She was really proactive for the animal rights movement. So she was one of the causes that you now have to have all dairy cattle. They have to go out uh, in summertime, for example. So we have a lot of those uh, debates in Sweden and have a quite strict animal uh, welfare legislation. So this research that you conducted, um, it focused uh, at least in part on the cardiovascular disease risk mm. and uh, sudden death. Now, this was a study that I believe that uh, you co-authored back in, in 2017. So for this particular study, what did you discover? Yeah, so what we discovered, we followed uh, people that were aged 40 or above and never had a cardiovascular event uh, before in their lifetime. So we started off, that's called a cohort study. So you start off with a population and you have some of them then having a dog and others not having a dog. And then we follow them over 12 years. And we assess then um, in the group that had a dog and the group without the dog, what was the risk of different cardiovascular outcomes and what was the risk of death? So what we found was that overall dog owners were less likely to die uh, during follow-up, even when accounting for differences in age and 
sex and uh, other factors. And what we found was that the differences was uh, most clear in the people that lived in single households. So there was, if you looked only uh, within that group, the differences were huge. Uh, so you could see that the, uh, the dogs might have a bigger effect if, if you live alone. And I think that is natural for some reasons. Uh, one is that if we look at the physical activity part, if you're a single dog owner, you have to do all that physical activity. Uh, you don't have anyone to split it up with. The other thing is that if you live alone, you might have a greater need of a social support and a friend uh, so you may benefit more uh, from the dog. And looking at myself, I, when I had my first dog, uh, I got her when I was 25 and I was a single and uh, I was really in a tight relationship with the dog. We did everything together. And I remember that if she got sick, even if it was just something minor, I would get extremely worried. And then I got my, I met my husband and we had kids and suddenly the kids, of course, like they became the center of our household. And then if the dog, you know, threw up or it was something minor, I would just be more relaxed. But she would also not be as important. It's a bit, you know, sad in a way. But I, I do think that if you live alone with your dog, you might have a tighter relationship than living um, together with other people as well. Yeah. Companionship is definitely a, a big thing when it comes to having a pet in the home. Um, specific cardiovascular events here that you were looking at, I believe you looked at heart attacks and strokes and, mm -hmm. and cardiovascular disease overall, as well as all cause mortality. Um, what did you find uh, in terms of the likelihood of having a heart attack? Let's start there. Yes. So then we have to look at the numbers. So let's see. So if you uh, live in a single household, we could see that you are protected from having, um, if you have a dog and you look at compared to others that do not have a dog in a single household, there was about 11% lower risk of a myocardial infarction. And the risk of dying from cardiovascular disease was even lower. So that was around 36% lower risk of dying in a cardiovascular event if you were in a single household. While for if you live in a multiple person household, we didn't really see a big effect on getting a cardiovascular event, but we could still see that you were at lower risk of dying uh, during follow-up compared to other non-dog owners in the multiple person household. And how long was the follow-up for the study? 12 years. That's a pretty long time. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we also conducted a follow-up study looking at, okay, but let's say that you get a myocardial infarction or stroke. Uh, is it so that the dog owners fare better? Because you could think about them, you, they might be in a little bit better shape. They might also get in earlier. That's what's seen for other people who are doing a lot of physical activity, that you notice symptoms a bit earlier. Uh, if you are active. Uh, and uh, we could actually see that even when adjusting for all other health conditions, if you get into the hospital with a stroke or myocardial infarction, you have a better outcome if you're a dog owner compared to a non-dog owner. Just 
hypothesizing here, would you say it's more of the emotional support component here or the fact that having a dog means you have to be physically active because you have to go out there and walk it? I think that the social support is quite important. We know that being alone is a risk factor for dying early. And we know from other studies that if you have a dog, you uh, connect with other people. And I can see that here in my area that I have a dog and I know all the older people by name and their dogs. And I can see all the dog owners, the senior dog owners, they go together on walks and so on. So I do think that the kind of uh, company side, the social support side is really important. But then, of course, physical activity is really important as well. So, uh, And it's a good motivator. I actually met the doctor when I, I was um, talking about these studies. And he approached me uh, coming from the audience after. And he just told me, you know, that I'm sure my dog saved my life. Because he was single and he had, he was a medical doctor and he had an ischemic stroke. And he was... Uh, severely disabled so uh, he had problems getting out of his bed so of course people started to talk about well you know maybe he can't keep his dog and uh, some people helped him to take care of the dog but then he had this, this big goal like I will be able to take care of my dog myself so he really got out of that bed and uh, the way he learned to walk again was from the motivation to get out and take care of his dog again. And I met him six months after his stroke and I couldn't tell at all that he had had a stroke. So he was convinced because we know that rehab is really important after having a stroke. And for him, this dog was the motivation he needed. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Um, would you say that it's the upper age bracket, people over a certain age, maybe over 50, that seem to benefit the most uh, from having a dog? Yeah, we can see it. It's a little bit hard to tell, but we can see that it seems to be more beneficial the older you get uh, this effect. Uh, I guess that if you're in a working age, you might get some of these, uh, you know, company and the physical activity anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think the, the older you get, the more important it might be. And then, of course, some many people, they, they hesitate if they're a bit older because they don't want to get the puppy. They feel that, you know, what if the dog survives me and so on. Um, so I think we should really make sure to make it possible also for older people to keep a pet if, if they have kind of the skills and, and what is needed to keep the dog. Were you able to look at the various breeds of dog and determine whether or not one was more beneficial in terms of human health? Mm, yeah, so we, we looked, there are more than 400 breeds, so it's hard to kind of look <laughs> at every breed. <laughs> but what we did was that we looked at different breed, groups of breed, uh, breeds. And uh, there we saw that the owners that had the best uh, health was those that had uh, different types of bird dogs, like uh, retriever dogs uh, and other breeds. Uh, we also saw a tendency to having larger dog was connected to better health. Um, so that could, you know, be some sign of um, either that you 
are more healthy from the beginning. So that's always the problem with this kind of studies that we always a bit worried that the dog owners are a little bit different already from the start. Might be, you know, persons that already enjoy a lot of physical activity, get a larger dog. So may have to do something with that. Or it might be that the larger dog, you know, protects you more because it needs more physical activity. My wife would probably want me to ask if you can recall where beagles fall in those rankings. Do do you know that off the top of your head? Uh, no, but I can email you after. The show. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. She, she's just going to be curious. She's going to be, you didn't ask her about beagles? So, yeah. okay, uh, no problem. Um, one of the other topics that you're going to be covering during your presentation uh, is answering the question of uh, whether dogs get the same diseases as humans yeah. do. And yeah. I know that there is a connection uh, between diabetes and dogs yeah. if the uh, person taking care of them themselves has diabetes. Uh, um, what did your research find here? Yeah, that was actually, uh, we're quite proud of that study. We published that now uh, in December in the British Medical Journal. So uh, we don't just have access to different ownership registries. So that's what I used for the studies I already discussed. We also have a large insurance company. So it's something like 70 to 80% of all Swedish dog have a um, health insurance and there's one company that dominates the market and they share their data with us for research. So that means that we can both follow the owner's health through uh, the hospital registry and drug prescription registry, but we can also follow their pets to see which pets get diabetes. So the idea here was that we think that since uh, cats and dogs and owners share the same environment. They live in the same, you know, housing. Uh, they also share some physical activity patterns, at least the dogs. So if you have a dog that you walk very little, maybe you walk very little as well and so on. And some even show uh, share some dietary habits uh, with their pets. If they, you know, eat a little bit too much, they might also be more prone to give their pets a little bit too much food. And there might be like external uh, factors like um, uh, stress from, uh, um, what do you say, like noise. Uh, if you're living in a very stressful environment, uh, that might stress both you and your pet. Like if you're in a divorce or some other issue, they might be stressed for everyone, which then what I mean is that you might have uh, shared lifestyle factors with your pet that could cause the same disease in you as in your pet. So this is what we did then, that we, we linked the insurance data for the pets together with the insurance data from the, for the owners. And what we could see, the main results was that if you get a pet with a dog, as a, uh, specifically a dog with diabetes diagnosis, you're yourself at increased risk of getting the diagnosis of diabetes. So I think that's quite uh, amazing that we could pick up that signal. Uh, that is pretty interesting. Um, 
I I have somebody who I used to work with here at the physicians committee who uh, was very much overweight, diabetic himself, um, also adopted a dog who was very much overweight. And I believe the dog may have also had diabetes. And both of them, just through changing their diet and exercising, were able to not only lose weight, but reverse their diabetes diagnosis. Did you see anything in your research that kind of showed as somebody themselves gets healthier, their pet does as well? Hmm. I didn't look at that, but I think that's a really interesting question because especially if you try to, you know, uh, reshape your lifestyle uh, and you have a, a dog, I'm sure that the dog may benefit as well from that lifestyle change. Uh, so that's a really interesting question. And what I mean with dog diabetes, I did my PhD on dog diabetes. So the interesting thing is that Generally, it has been thought about as a more type 1 um, diabetes-like uh, disease because they usually need insulin and they don't have so good insulin production themselves. But when you look at it, uh, it seems like uh, there's a multitude of studies now showing that overweight is a risk factor for uh, canine diabetes. But the problem is that they, when they have a trigger for losing their insulin production, it rarely comes back again. So I'm sure that if you have a pet with diabetes, it will benefit from losing weight if it's overweight. But it's not that common that they can go into remission. And I'd be remiss myself if I didn't ask you if you were able to look at cats or any other animal in addition mm. to dogs. Yes, I mean, I love cats. So that's really, and it's a very common question. So we don't have a national cat register yet. There's been several proposals about that. So I can't use this methodology to, to study cats in the cat owner studies. But we did look at them in the shared risk for diabetes, and we didn't see any, any signal in cats, which was a bit surprising because we know that diabetes in cats is very much linked to overweight. Uh, but we were then discussing that it might be explained by differences in physical activity. I mean, the cat won't move even if you start to take long walks generally. You know what? Your research is as interesting as I hoped it would be. And I got to know what's next for you. What's coming down the line? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not only doing pet ownership. Uh, studies. I'm also doing some other non-pet related, but now I managed also to connect the both because I got the big research grant to explore the microbiome in uh, a new study called SCOPIS. So it's almost 10,000 people. And we have then a deep sequenced. Um, so what you do, you sequence uh, the DNA you can find in a stool sample. And by doing that, you can explore the bacteria. And uh, we have now done that in a large number of uh, people. And we also have a questionnaire going on what kind of pets they have uh, and some habits around pets. So we might be able to do the biggest study on looking at relations with having a pet and whether that could affect your gut microbiota composition. I know quite a few gastroenterologists who are going to become fascinated with that research as well. Uh, Dr. Tove Fall, you are just one in a million, and I would love to have you back to talk about your next round of research when you're ready. Okay, thank you.
science is amazing, isn't it? I mean, it is just fascinating. And that is why I love doing this show so much, because just when you think that you've heard it all, boom, another guest like Dr. Fall comes on and drops some new knowledge on you. I'm telling you, we never, ever, ever stop trying to raise your health IQ in new ways. Love this show. I hope that you do as well. And Dr. Fall, by the way, will be among the nearly 30 experts who will be joining together to present the latest fact and evidence-based nutrition science at the International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine. And I want to stress a word here. Credible. As in credible information. Not some random alleged fact from Joe Schmo's diet blog. No, no, my friend. This is the real deal guaranteed to take your health to the next level. And the conference is coming up July 15th through the 17th. And the good news is it is completely online this year, meaning you can join us from literally anywhere in the world. And now some more good news. There is a special discount available just for you, my exam roomies, my exam room listeners. Use promo code examroom, one word, to save $50 off the cost of registration. That's examroom, all one word, to save $50 when you register and lock in three days of the latest science on nutrition, lifestyle, longevity, and health. It's going to be amazing. A full list of speakers and topics is available at pcrm.org slash ICNM. And when you're there, be sure to register using the promo code examroom. Again, one word to save $50. And there's a link to do everything right now, along with the code to copy in the episode notes. And I do, I really do hope to see you there. Everyone who I've ever talked to about this conference has walked away just beaming about what it is that they experience. So I would love it if you could experience the very same. PCRM.org slash ICNM or click the link right now in the episode notes. And finally today, you know, it takes a lot to make the world a healthier place. That is our goal, but it takes a lot, a whole lot. And we could not do our part without the tremendous support of the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. The work that they are doing is truly heartwarming because it goes such a long way because it's a fund that is born out of the love and the passion that Greg Ryder had for animals. And today it is being used to support organizations that share that same passion, that same love that Greg had through animal rescue efforts and by promoting a vegan lifestyle and wildlife conservation efforts. So please visit GregoryWriterFund.org. That's Gregory Writer, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org, to learn more about Greg's story and about current animal issues. And while you're there, you can also subscribe to the Fund's newsletter so you can keep up with everything. And you can find a link right now to their website in the episode notes. And for today, that's going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard and Dr. Tove Fall for helping us celebrate on this amazing, extraordinary, milestone 250th episode. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. 
thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as we go for another 250, keep it plant-based.